Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 88 of the Alabama Liberal Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about Old Testament government versus New Testament government. Subtitle being, America has the world's most right-wing healthcare system. Probably can't fit all that into the title, but you'll know that officially the subtitle is, America has the world's most right-wing healthcare system. So this is part of that quintet of episodes, I promised you, where we're going to be talking about big, huge things, things that are so big they almost don't fit into a podcast. And so, of course, healthcare is one of those massive things. That's one of those things that I've never had a specific episode about. It gets mentioned here and there in nooks and crannies, overshadowed a lot of things. People have talked about Obamacare. That has been a huge occurring theme throughout the podcast and different medical ailments. And so it takes little bites around the edges, but we've never had an episode specifically about healthcare. And of course, there's all these other things going on, like the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, the resurgence of coronavirus, the fact that Trump's still having rallies and won't go away. And to me, these are all tied around sort of a loose theme of government. What is government? Republicans have one version of it. Democrats have another version of it. That's what I mean by Old Testament, New Testament, and I'll explain that in a minute. But to me, it seems like both parties have a fundamentally different idea of government, what it is, what it should be, what it should do for people, if it should help people. And so that way you can tie in a lot of loosely connected things into an episode primarily about healthcare, but that we'll talk about other things, even the treatment of Olympic athletes, which somehow that became partisan. So you might be thinking, well, we hadn't seen you since early July. Hope you had a good summer break, listeners. Nice travel going on, but you probably didn't because coronavirus is still raging. Right, We might have thought that we had it licked back in May or June, and of course I didn't really believe that, but you might have heard me celebrating prematurely because I kind of wanted to believe that, didn't really believe it. But coronavirus is back and raging, and it's almost become like one of those horror movie villains. It's Michael Myers or it's Jason. Michael Myers is in the basement. He's trapped. The house is burning down around him. He's been shot. He's been stabbed. We think, okay, finally, this motherfucker who's terrorized us for all this time, he's finally going to die, and he's down. Uh-oh, coming back again, Halloween 6, Delta variant. And so we keep seeing these problems bubble back up that we think we leaked. The Taliban in Afghanistan, now they're back. They've basically retaken Afghanistan. Super discouraging. If coronavirus is Michael Myers, maybe the Taliban is Jason and that we think we've got it and it comes back. Another discouraging thing, Trump is a rally in Coleman, Alabama. So this is not very far at all from my home county where a lot of people I care about live pretty close to them. And I am anticipating that there will be a massive upsurge in coronavirus. Every time he has one of these rallies, wherever he has it at, it becomes a coronavirus hotspot. There's no real room for that in like Marshall County. For example, they put the tent back up outside. And this relates to healthcare where the emergency rooms are so full that they have to put the tent back up outside. And you might think, but why is this happening? Because there is a vaccine it's been proven 99.6% effective at preventing coronavirus deaths. Everybody should take this vaccine. I got mine months ago. I can't really believe that so many people are dragging their feet about it. I knew there'd be some stragglers, a few million people here, tens of millions, but I didn't think it would be close to half the country that has to be sweet-talked into getting this vaccine. I waited on this thing like a new iPhone. People were like, oh my God, when the vaccine comes, everything will be different. I got the vaccine as fast as I could. I made an appointment. I didn't just show up. I did make an appointment. And the the demand for it in Los Angeles was so high, it took several weeks just to get the first shot because they had to fit me in or whatever. And the woman who gave me the first shot just God, I'm so bored doing this. I just do so many of these shots all day, every day. Somebody comes in, I stick them, they leave. I mean, it sounded quite monotonous to her. And yet I'm hearing different stories out of a place like North Alabama, where they're almost begging people to get vaccinated. And some people have, and some people haven't. Unfortunately, I had a cousin passed away from coronavirus very, very recently, only a few days ago, and they were not much older than I am. And I remember growing up and kind of looking up to this person. They were the cool cousin, you know. Now to basically have that person dead from coronavirus because they didn't get vaccinated. I see it a little differently than a lot of people do because I go on Twitter sometimes and they seem to celebrate, okay, good, somebody who didn't want to get the vaccine, they're dead and we can get them on with it or whatever. I mean, that's a little far in my opinion, but at the same time, I really want to encourage people, please, God, get the vaccine. I'm hoping that his death, because a lot of people knew him, he was pretty popular. I'm hoping that it will send ripple effects that, no, you can get it, even if you're young, even if you're in shape. Delta variant is not the regular coronavirus. We sort of get into this idea of 
Old Testament government, New Testament government. What does that mean? Well, the Old Testament government is what I think of as Republicans, which is the Old Testament God, who's very into punishing people. And he's very into like the story of Jonah and the whale or asking Abraham to kill his own son or Noah's Ark, that story where you flood the entire earth because you're just so disgusted with humanity and the people that are on the earth. You want to kill all of them. You want to save a few animals and a few people. But other than that, earth's just got to be scrapped. You just got to scrap it and throw it in the trash. And then you think about New Testament government, which is Jesus Christ which is empathy, which is saying, you know, everybody's flawed, but you can find redemption. People are not beyond redemption. And yet, of course, there's elements that bleed into the one or the other. In a lot of the Old Testament stories, people might be saved at the very end. But I think of it generally as God-fearing. When you hear people say, I'm God-fearing, God's something to be afraid of. It's not ask God what he can do for you. Ask what you can do for God. And so the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments and people wandering the desert, and it's a lot of tragedies and a lot of hardships. With the New Testament, Jesus is feeding the starving. He's helping the poor. He's healing the sick. There's a lot of miracles. There's a lot of things that he's doing for people. He has a lot more empathy for people, I would say, but there's still flavorings of that Old Testament. Jesus is a little judgmental about sex. I would say a lot of judgmental about sex. He goes to a gambling hall and he flips over the tables. He's disgusted with gambling. He doesn't have a high opinion of human vice if it doesn't immediately renounce its ways and convert to him. So even though there's some overlap, they have a slightly different view of humanity, in my opinion. And so even though Republicans and Democrats, people out like, oh, they're two separate countries. They're just so different. They're not on the same page on anything. That's not really true. I think that's a division that's been spread largely by the media and as well as social media because people like to think they're a different species than other people, that they're just subhuman. And it really has become a bit like Rwanda before the genocide and that we kind of are thinking, you can hear liberals say stuff like, if Republicans get sick and die from COVID, maybe we're better off without them. And you can hear Republicans say a version of that. I remember growing up in Alabama, there was a kid being like, he was dead against abortion, but he wasn't totally against making it illegal because he's like, well, most people that are getting aborted, they're liberal Democrat babies, and that means there's less of them. So if there's more abortions for liberals and Democrats, and there's more gay marriage for them, and everybody turns gay, then the only people reproducing will be Republicans. So you'll gradually have a more Republican country, was his kind of thinking about. When you get into this idea of, we're not trying to win you over, we're trying to kill you out. (laughs) That's a bit of an exaggeration. I really hope a lot of Americans don't think that way, but I feel like they do think that way. I mean, you hear Republicans throw words around all the time that are like, well, if Biden comes to Georgia, He better bring secret service. They're willing to kill somebody that disagrees with them. I don't hear a lot of major Democrats talk that way. You hear people in the base talk that way, maybe on Twitter, you know, just talking shit. I mean, most of these people are full of shit, but I don't hear a lot of the big wigs in the party talk that way. For Republicans, I hear a lot of just mainstream upper crust Republicans sort of throw around lingo that seems like it would be okay to kill a Democrat if they were in their way or there was something that they were impeding the country. So let's talk about kind of the differences of that and break down the nuances. With Republicans, what do they really want the government to do? What's their fundamental platform? Seems to be a lot about security. They want the borders to be secure. They don't want to path the citizenship. They don't want to offer them a helping hand or anything like that. They want people to be out of the country that are not supposed to be here. That's the first thing. Second thing is they want a strong military. They want to be able to defend themselves. They don't want anything pushing them around. Like what's happening in Afghanistan is kind of funny to me because a lot of these Republicans that talked about a year ago, Trump's right. We're in Afghanistan. It's a waste of money. It's a total joke. We shouldn't be there. This is a waste of lives, American lives that should be here. They should be in their communities, rebuilding those communities, not over in Afghanistan, fixing that. And then the second that Biden starts to actually withdraw trips from Afghanistan, and we see what it actually looks like. They're like, oh my God, look at that pussy Biden. Pussy Biden, pussy in chief, running away from a fight, turning Jimmy Carter, turning tail, running away, typical Democrat, which of course is not really true. Trump signed that agreement. He had already started the withdrawal process. He started it when he really shouldn't have. He was running for re-election. And he made a lot of big decisions as he's running for re-election. Typical norms are, let's see if we get re-elected before we set all this stuff in motion. But of course, he didn't care about any of that. I mean, last August, September, October, even when every poll in America had him losing in the landslide, he's rushing through bills, he's making agreements, he's doing this, really acting like a guy who's going to live forever. 
even if he knows he's probably got six months to live or whatever, and just rushing all this crap through. And of course, that makes Biden's job harder in a lot of different ways. Why does he do some of that stuff? Some of it is probably stuff he truly believes. Some of it might be stuff he just wanted to make Biden's job as hard as it possibly could be, should he take over the country. And then Trump can look back and do exactly what he's doing right now and be like, oh my God, look at how bad Biden's fucking up. Looks like you guys are going to need me to come back in and fix things, right? It's like a guy fucks up a house right before somebody else moves in and then say, oh yeah, this isn't the house that you thought you're moving into. I'll take it off your hands at a discount from what you paid me for it. And so it's a very cynical ploy, but everything that guy does is incredibly cynical. He's going to have this rally in Coleman, Alabama. A lot of people are probably going to get killed contracting the virus. They're going to be in hotels. They're going to be in restaurants. They're going to be mixing and mingling. Most of these people are not vaccinated. They don't wear face masks and there'll be an uptick, but he doesn't care. He doesn't give a damn. For a guy who thinks he's going to make a comeback in 2024, which I think is about as likely as two bolts of lightning striking me dead, if I won the lottery and had sex with Megan the Stallion in the same day, I think that's about the likelihood that he'll be making a huge comeback and reelected in 2024 to the presidency. That's about the odds I would put that at. But for a guy who thinks that way, he sure doesn't seem very protective of his fans. For a guy who never won a majority of the popular vote in 2016 or 2020, first president since Benjamin Harrison to lose back-to-back popular votes, and who never polled in the majority a single week he was in office, you'd think he'd be a little more protective of the few fans he has left, but no, he's throwing rallies 2021 when there's no reason to throw them, when the election's four years away. And of course, we know why he's doing this. He's in debt. He needs to pay his debts. These kind of keeping his name out there and keeping himself out there makes him more relevant. He's a has-been in a wash-up. So is Bill O'Reilly. I saw where they were going to go on tour and talk about stuff. And I thought, yeah, a couple of old has-beens, one who's been disgraced and doesn't have a career anymore, and the other who's got hundreds of millions of dollars in debts coming soon, they have to raise money. And this is the only way they can do it is to milk rubes and suckers in places like Coleman, Alabama. The reason I found out about that rally is it was on uh, social media. Somebody said, yeah, Trump's next sold out venue is a cow pasture in Nowheresville, Alabama. They're obviously saying there's no way he could sell out Madison Square Garden. He couldn't play a truly big venue, even if they would let him, which they won't. But there's no way he could really play like an enormous venue. He has to go to rural places and cow pastures and things like that. But then when I saw where it was, I was like, holy shit, that's like 30 minutes away from it didn't inspire a ton of confidence and his rallies bring a certain element that I think is pretty dangerous. In terms of Afghanistan and people saying, well, this is just showing why Biden shouldn't be president. To me, I had a very different reaction. Like the footage is horrible. The Taliban retaking a place like that is absolutely horrible and it's terrible for people. And I want to say, especially women, it kind of irritates me on social media. People say, think about the women. And they're like, think about everybody. Think about everybody who's in there. You shouldn't just show empathy for the women. And I'm like, yeah, but realistically, who's going to have the worst time in a Afghanistan that the Taliban retakes or whatever. Most of the people saying that, by the way, about showing everybody empathy, it's white women in America. I guess they think they know what it's like to be a woman in Afghanistan because they've suffered a few dozen microaggressions in the workplace. But I'm like, really, it's odd that they're the ones making that argument. But that just shows that women have no more solidarity for each other than men do. Men don't have solidarity for each other. We look at men from other countries and ethnicities and religions and think, oh yeah, they're my enemy or my antagonist. Or, you know, there's that tribalism thing that kicks in at a certain level and women are no different. So it's not too totally surprising that some of the people who literally see misogyny and sexism everywhere in the United States, they're not extending that branch of empathy to women who were really, really going to be living in a horrible situation. Was a woman who's a female mayor in Afghanistan that said, I'm just sitting here waiting for the Taliban to kill me. And that was such a stark cold water statement, like just saying that makes my blood chill because it's literally, that's the mentality of I'm just sitting around and I can't go anywhere. If I go to Pakistan, they'll just as easily take me back to Afghanistan. Iran doesn't want us. So it's like a lot of these people saying, well, why don't they leave the country? It's like, where could they go realistically? And that was one of the reasons I think America was in Afghanistan in the first place is because it wasn't totally about Afghanistan. It was because China has a border with Afghanistan. Iran does. Pakistan does. We wanted a military presence and several bases around countries that we didn't trust. Because think about how useful it is to have all these military bases in Afghanistan if there's a coup in Pakistan or a bunch of loose nuclear weapons or if something happens in Iran or you needed a launching pad for an invasion into China. I always thought that had more to do with Afghanistan than the actual country did because I think most people generally viewed Afghanistan as a hopeless lost cause. And I think that for people saying, well, the fact that the Taliban retook Afghanistan so quickly 
that just shows Biden's failure. To me, I really see it the exact opposite because to me, the fact that they retook the whole country in a matter of weeks, that just shows that we really should have left a long time ago. I think you could have been there another year. I think it could have been there another five years. I don't see how it ever would have made a difference. If we've been there 20 years and we've spent thousands of American lives and trillions of dollars, and it's been 20 years, our longest war ever, and we have not made more of a difference then the Taliban can retake the entire country in a few weeks. I don't see how being there another 20 years would have made any difference whatsoever. I mean, the only way you could really, do you import people? Do you take all of the Syrian refugees that are fleeing from Assad? Do you start taking them to Afghanistan? Do you set them up? I mean, do you completely replace the people who were there with different people? Is that how you go about doing it? And that you just start taking people from all over the globe and relocating them to Afghanistan and giving them houses and giving them jobs and praying that it all works out? We were doing that to an extent by the way because a lot of people saying this shit like Tucker Carlson been like oh it sucks that we're gonna be stuck with all these Afghanistan refugees and things like that I'm like a lot of those people are coming back to America because if you really go back and look at the history where did Bush get a lot of the early people to run the Afghanistan government they were living in the United States Karzai and his family his cousins, his brothers, things like that, they were in Baltimore. They were living in America. And they took them from the United States and put them back in Afghanistan. A lot of people who were in the United States and the Afghani community in Baltimore and New York, they were going to basically run the government, the new government of Afghanistan. They fled the Taliban in the first place, or their fathers did, or whoever did, and they came to the United States. And then they were going to go back. So now some of these people will return to the United States. Why? Because they don't obviously feel safe there. When you look at the Taliban taken city by city and the Afghanistan military, which has been trained by the United States, they've been armed and trained and funded by the United States. And their immediate instinct is, let's run away. Let's go home. Let's go back to our villages and protect our own wife and kids or whatever. They immediately disband. And then the central government, the president and his cabinet, they flee as fast as they can. Some people said they saw the president leave with a bunch of cash in a helicopter. I don't know. Some people say that's Russian propaganda and it's not true. But either way, he did leave. The cabinet left. So there's no central government there to even coordinate an effort. You would basically have to have people in the military say, we'll single-handedly fight this battle Red Dawn style, which you know they're not going to do that. Afghanistan military has never shown that kind of initiative. Most of the early officers that did, they were assassinated or got killed. You basically have a situation where the flag went up to Pakistan, like, okay, all the thousands of Taliban fighters you've been sheltering this whole time, please come back out of the woodwork and come back into Afghanistan and you can retake the country. It's super discouraging and you feel bad for the women that are trapped there and left there. But at the same time, imagine what you could do in Alabama with the resources that have gone into Afghanistan. If you had spent $2 trillion and had 20 years of direct intervention and aid and guidance and governance into Alabama, it would look like Germany today. I mean, it would look like Japan. Birmingham would look like Tokyo if you had spent that level of money and that level of resources. People think about the United States, and when they really think about it, especially if they're not from here, they're really thinking about New York, California, Washington, D.C., and maybe a handful of other places. But about half the states in the United States are not doing that great. Biden knows this. A lot of people know this. That's why the infrastructure bill, that's why it got something like 19 Republican votes in the Senate, which seemed incredible. And they probably won't get that many for the $3.5 trillion they're trying to do and add on to that bill. But even if they got a few, that seems incredible, considering the fact that the third stimulus did not get a single Republican vote. You go from zero for the third stimulus to 19 votes for the infrastructure package. And I think that there has to be an acknowledgement that there's a lot of states in this country that are not doing that great. And if you go to certain places in West Virginia, they don't look radically different than Afghanistan. I know that sounds major, major monster exaggeration, and it is to a certain extent. But there are places in Alabama that do not have running water. They do not have a reliable electricity. They're not hooked up to a main grid. They may have generators or something like that. And so there are people living in rural areas. They watch stuff on TV that looks like a different country. Like when you're growing up in Alabama in the 90s and you're watching Seinfeld and Friends and Frasier and NYPD Blue and all these cool shows, you don't really see yourself on television and you don't see yourself reflected. And their reality, very different than your reality. And that's become even more true today which is why sometimes I think rural people gravitate so strongly to Fox News and they just hear fire and brimstone, just to bring it back to the initial 
theme of the podcast, Democrats might think of New Testament government as the New Deal. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. You hear the New Deal talked about with a lot of reverence within the Democratic Party. Let's give people jobs. Bernie Sanders wants a federal jobs guarantee. He wants free college. That's an extension of New Deal policies like Social Security. Basically, every program ever that has benefited the middle class and working class in this country has come from the Democratic Party. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Pell Grants, the GI Bill, disability, unemployment, the Obamacare statutes, before a kid is 26, they can go back onto their parents' insurance, get rid of the pre-existing condition statutes. Bill and Hillary Clinton, they wanted to do a Medicare for all type program, but specifically geared towards kids. They knew that kids would be sort of a backdoor into it. If kids grew up with Medicare for all, and then at a certain age, they got kicked off of it, and then had to go back to private sector insurance, then a lot of parents would be like, well, we don't like this. So it would sort of be a backdoor into getting what a lot of people really want. All of these programs have come from the Democratic Party. There may have been one Republican idea that benefited the middle class or working class, but I'm not aware of it. Somebody can find it. Please let me know. Don't feel shy about letting me know. I've asked several times. I put out the feelers, but I'm like, every single program just about has been from the Democratic Party, but that's all New Testament government. This idea that the government should help poor people and working class people, and it needs to take a role in that. Old Testament government doesn't believe that. It believes in manifest destiny, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the libertarian ideal of you are what you make. And if you can't be strong enough and smart enough and savvy enough to make your way in America, you're going to fail. You know, that's sad, but there's always winners and losers in life. You hear people say that. They're like, not everybody can be a winner. You hear that kind of logic going on. Your mind may not be necessarily one or the other. You may flip back and forth. Sometimes I find myself, I would say 75% New Testament government and then a few shadings of Old Testament government. And that's okay to not necessarily be totally converted one way or the other. Sometimes I see Democrats like on Twitter, especially, which is by far the most judgmental platform, but you see a lot of judgment on social media generally. It exists on Instagram. It exists on Facebook. It exists on Reddit. But I do think Twitter sort of puts that on steroids. But you'll see something that I almost call like weaponized empathy, almost a militant version of empathy, which is where somebody goes, that person doesn't have as much empathy as I do because they're scum. That right there, you don't see the paradox in it, but you're essentially saying you're a better person than this other person is, and it's because they're scum and you're better than they are, but that isn't really a better person if you really think about it that way. But you see arguments kind of like that all the time, like, you're a creep, bastard, motherfucker, you know? And I'm like, yeah, a good person doesn't talk to a total stranger that way. A good person is not out there trying to shame a total stranger and then get likes and retweets, which is the laziest fucking form of any kind of activism. Like, are you really doing anything? No, you're just trying to shame somebody you post an Instagram story or you'll put out some tweets or something like that and you're just trying to shame somebody that you met in your everyday life and then you get other people to say, oh, that's I'm agreeing with you. You're the good person. They're the bad person. But you haven't really done anything. And so you can sort of see that judgment and that shading flavoring into New Testament government, which is not totally surprising. I think it's always kind of been there. America was founded by Puritans. And so that Puritanical streak, even in woke circles, even when people talk about being woke and talk about having empathy, it can't help but flavor it to an extent. Wokeism is fantastic if you're saying, I want to understand what somebody who's not like me goes through. I want to understand their lives and their struggles, and their struggles are different. My wife goes through a totally different struggle than I do. She just has a different experience. I mean, even within the healthcare system, there's things people have done to her that I don't think they would do to me. And you have to acknowledge that and be aware of that. But then people can flip that back into something where they're not trying to learn anything about somebody who's not like them. They're just trying to score the points of I'm better than you are. And so then it becomes very difficult to have necessary needed conversations. The other day outside of the Trader Joe's, there was a woman and she had four kids and she was asking people for food and going around and begging people, can I have money? Can I have food? Do you have food items that you just bought that you don't want? Can you give me money so I can buy things? I think I overheard somebody ask her, say, where's your family? They don't live here. Where's the dad for these kids? He's not here. I just came here from, I believe it was Belize. When Republicans see somebody like this, their instinct is, why did you have four kids? You couldn't take care of one. You're out here on the street asking for help. And then I heard somebody say, well, what is your plan? 
And the comment was, we may be able to get into the shelter tonight. And it's like, that's not really what they're asking. That's like what you're doing tonight and tomorrow. And you're living like day to day to day to day. But what's your long-term plan? How are you not out here asking people for help, strangers for help? for you and four kids that you just had. Why did you have them? Perhaps you're Catholic. So it flips from back and forth. Your first instinct may be you see a woman like that, you think that's terrible. I want to help her. I want to help her four kids. Then the next instinct comes into, but why does she have four kids? And why didn't she take some birth control? And why don't people take some responsibility for their lives? Then your next instinct flips back to, well, maybe she's Catholic. And the Catholic Church has put out this anti-birth control, anti-condom message forever, which is totally destructive and it's ruining people's lives. And they have kids they can't afford. And when they're too young, they don't know any better. And it's totally bad. Then your next instinct flips back to, yeah, but what personal responsibility does somebody have to the then say the Catholic Church doesn't say not just don't take birth control. They also say don't have sex. If you're not prepared in a marriage and you're not prepared to have kids, then the next instinct flips back to, yeah, but that's not human nature. And so you can go back and forth and back and forth. The conservatives may have a good argument that that's the kind of person who comes to the United States. They have nothing to offer but four kids that need to be fed, need to be clothed. And to say that out loud, you hear people say that and they might say like, you're an asshole, you're a racist, you don't have any empathy helping somebody like that. The whole world is full of scenarios like that. When you look at wealthy countries, there's only about 25 to 30 truly wealthy countries. Like what we think of as the United States, there's Europe, there's Japan, there's a few dozen other countries here and there spread out all over the world. And the vast majority of people don't live like we might live. And so when you get into an argument like that, do you take the Republican side, which is where America's got to close its borders and kick everybody out and admit no new people and just be ultra harsh and not give any citizenship? Or do you take the liberal side, which is where you can adopt two billion of the poorest people on the planet and still have a country that works, that's funded and can work and maintain itself? Probably neither of those is true. Probably they're both destructive. On the Republican side, you're being so harsh in Old Testament, you're Noah in his ark. You're in your ark. The world is flooding. You pull up the drawbridge. You say, no, no new people. We don't need them. No, thank you, sir. And you just let everybody drown, which is not really sustainable because if the rest of the world's in complete and total chaos and is poor, then eventually that has to trickle back into the United States. No country is truly an island. But then you take the liberal side of things, which is to basically say, well, we don't want to have any foreign wars, and we don't want to do any interventionist policies, even in countries where there's a horrible dictator and they're starving 90% of their country, 90% of their country wants to run away and they want to join the United States. And then we assume all these refugees that perhaps are having kids that they can't take care of, then they have to go to social services. Social services has to pay their way. They do different forms of government help. Then Republicans say, no, no more government help. Then they're assholes for saying that. So then liberals are like, hey, why are we not helping out more people like that? Meanwhile, working class people in Alabama, they don't have enough money and never have. And they might like a standard of living. They might like to one day be able to send their own kids to college. So they're like, well, why is government funds going to people who the liberals said we had to take because we had to help them, but they don't feel like helping me because I'm white working class. So you see these arguments, you get into this and it's not so black and white and it's not so cut and dry, but that doesn't fit into 140 characters. And you can't get an argument that simplistic. I think that the old school religions don't really work because they're too simplistic. They're too black and white. Every time you ask somebody a complicated moral question, be like, well, what should I do about this? And they give you a Bible verse. You almost want to slap them like right across the face and say, don't give me that old cornball shit that has no relevance to what I'm talking about. This is a modern problem I need to deal with. They don't really work. A lot of times what we get with now from social media, I mean, how can something complex like history and culture and discussions about immigration, how can that possibly fit into 140 characters? It really can't. It's a little encouraging that podcasts have taken off because you can sort of at least fit a decent argument into it. If people listen to it and if they hear it, too often a lot of times what they might do is take two sentences out of an hour-long podcast and then tweet that out and then the outrage industrial complex just starts the whole gears all over again. BuzzFeed picks it up and Huffington Post jumps on somebody and then Vox does a reaction to it or whatever. And so by that time, everything's so twisted up. Even something as simple as coronavirus has become political and complicated. Even something as simple as the Olympics has become political and complicated. I couldn't believe it. Olympic athletes were becoming so, not necessarily the athletes, but the reaction to them was becoming so political. Trump comes out and calls the U.S. women's soccer team a bunch of losers, and then his fans feel obligated to back him up on that, or some of them did anyway. And I thought, what kind of message is this send that the president of the United States feels comfortable 
taking a steaming dump on Olympic athletes and shitting on them. They're going to represent our country at the Tokyo Games, and he feels comfortable crapping on them. Simone Biles, when she quit, you had some conservatives immediately jump in and say, this is wokeism, this is millennial, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I think she's too young to be a millennial, but they called her one anyway, because that's what they, they lump everything they don't like as millennials and Black Lives Matter and, and wokeism, and so they immediately jumped on her and said, this is what's wrong with the culture, people think it's great to quit, they're celebrating this quitter attitude, and of course they had to jump on her, because they've never let a case go by where there's a black woman that they didn't take a dump on. Like Serena Williams throws her tennis racket, they all got a pile on her. Naomi Osaka doesn't want to be interviewed, they all got a pile on her. Simone Biles quits, they all got a pile on her. I feel like they just couldn't let it go that there could be one case where they don't go after her. At the same time, kept seeing all these stories about her and her boyfriend, this dude who's an NFL player, which I had to wonder, like, he played a role in things that we don't understand yet. And people have been like, that's crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. They're a great couple, they're a great couple. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, a lot of people thought Chris Brown and Rihanna were a great couple until they didn't, right? I saw like a lot of people being like, oh, it's so great that he's supportive. But to me, it looked like before the Olympics, they were doing a lot of traveling and goofing off and being on Instagram and not taking it that serious. And then the second she could, she left Japan and went to go watch him practice. And I'm like, I don't know, to me, seems like she's taking kind of a regressive role to be like a football wife instead of the best gymnast of all time. I mean, poor Silent Simone Biles, the best gymnast of all time, the greatest athlete of all time. And her top priorities shouldn't really be going to watch like the... 200th best football player in this moment, not of all time, but just of this moment, like one of the mid-ranking players of the NFL, go watch him practice. I saw some interview where he said, yeah, when I met her, I didn't know who she was. This would have been like 2018, 2019, which I thought is impossible. The Rio games has already happened. 2016's already happened. She's already won all these medals. People call her the greatest athlete. For a guy to come out there and say he had no idea who she was, and he's an athlete as well, number one, I think he's lying. But number two, I think that just shows that he has no respect for women in sports. He has no respect for gymnastics and he has no respect for women in sports and female Olympians. It's a big deal to go to the Olympics and win gold medals. It's a lot bigger deal to do that than to be in the NFL. And so to kind of diminish an accomplishment by saying, I didn't know who that person was or whatever, either he's lying about it, which is really bad, or he truly didn't know who she was and just didn't care. Like he just how little regard he had for female athletes. So I kind of thought he was bad news. That's the only variable. I mean, in 2016, she fucking nailed it. She did a great job people calling her the greatest athlete of all time. Now she's with this guy. I also think that she really didn't benefit from the Olympics being postponed one year. I think a lot of athletes were hurt by it, but I think she was really hurt by it. I think if it had been in 2020, she would have been fine and would have done a great job. But 2021, I remember she even basically said that. She was interviewed by 60 Minutes and was like, yeah, when I saw the games were going to be postponed a year, I couldn't believe it. And my heart sank because it was almost like, oh, shit, I don't know if I can keep up my training and to be under such stress to train and keep your body in shape and practice and practice and practice. And it's like, I got to do this another year. And I thought it was almost done. But a lot of people came in and said, oh, well, it's a lot of pressure to be told you're the greatest athlete of all time. And I'm like, well, her team sought that out. A lot of times athletes, they want that label, like their managers, their agents, their publicists. There's an entire team around Simone Biles. You don't see them, but they're out there getting her the Wheaties contracts. And I mean, she was in all these commercials. I couldn't turn on the TV and not see her. What was it? Uber Eats or something. She was in all these commercials, all these interviews, all this press. And that's a lot of money. And so any team around an athlete, they're going to want you to be called the greatest athlete of all time because your business lawyer, your manager, your publicist, whoever it is, they're going to be able to get you more endorsements, more contracts. Since the game's over, they asked her, they said, well, are you retired? She goes, no, I could come back in 2024. And number one, I don't really I think that's her choice. I don't think she'll get a say in whether she comes back or not. I think almost anybody in the Olympic team would say, no, she'll be 27 years old. And you don't do that at an Olympics and then come back for the next one, especially when there's all these young girls that they've literally never been to an Olympic Games and there'll be a whole new generation come up. I don't know if that's her choice, but to keep that speculation out there, she'll keep going and she could do it for years and years more. That's partly about contracts and partly about endorsements and they seek that stuff out. To have people be super tough on her and then to have other people be like, leave Simone Biles alone. She's the best thing that ever happened. Again, you can see where even an athlete's totally unpolitical decision to say, I'm not at my best. Please let me take a step back. Something that's just totally benign and has no relevance to politics whatsoever. That becomes political. Everything gets put through this meat grinder of what's political and what's not. And that relates to healthcare. Healthcare is not really something that is political, although it has become political because Fox News won't 
it to be political. Why does Fox News want it to be political? Because a lot of people in the Republican Party have made a shitload of money off health care. At one time, Bill Frist was the Senate Majority Leader for the Republicans, and he was a very wealthy and successful surgeon. A lot of doctors are pretty conservative. For one of the upper-level professions in terms of high education, and most upper-level professions that would have a PhD or a graduate degree, something like that, a lot of those people do shift liberal except for the medical profession. And that's why you see Ben Carson, super conservative surgeon that becomes Trump's puppet or, and different people like that. And it's not that hard to find doctors who were very conservative and don't think the healthcare system should change at all. Fox News gets a lot of money from pharmaceutical ads. Big pharmaceutical companies, they buy ads. They buy them during MSNBC too, just to be completely fair. Probably the message they don't want their viewers watching is, oh, the American healthcare system should change. It's crazy that it has the world's most right-wing healthcare system. And I call it that because whenever I used to see this stuff about, oh, well, Republicans, they're working on a bill to change. They're not trying to change shit. American healthcare is perfect for them. They don't want to change an aspect of it or an iota of it because it's the most expensive healthcare system in the world. It's the most conservative. People that are very, very wealthy can get extremely good health care. People that can't might die. And they're not really looking to change all that. And again, that comes back to Old Testament government of people that are very poor. How much money do you give them? How much help do you give them? If they die, they might think, well, that's one less mouth to feed. And that's one less person that will take government aid. I heard some people float around that one of the reasons Republicans weren't that concerned about coronavirus is because it targeted minorities and poor people and even some of the older people. You know, a lot of older people that are on Social Security and Medicare, maybe they think they're too expensive. Take it from their perspective, like get fully into their side. Like we need the wealthy people to create the jobs, to hire people, to do innovation, to keep the trains running on time. Laborers, we don't need them to last forever. And that's kind of their mindset. And in their mind, that's not necessarily a wrong thing. Liberals might hear that and think, well, that's borderline sociopathic. But I think in their minds it is, if it's the single mother who's just going to have four kids that nobody can take care of and she's a drain on the taxpayer and she gets coronavirus because she refuses to get vaccinated and then she dies, is that really our responsibility to force her to do the right thing when she doesn't want to and she'd just be having kids that we then have to pay for. And that's not necessarily wrong the way that they view it. And so you can see it automatically where it's a little complicated. There's some gray areas. And yet liberals on Twitter, they're not saying things that are radically different. They're basically saying if somebody refuses to get vaccinated, rest in peace. We wash our hands of you. We've tried our best. We've screamed at you. You won't get vaccinated. And so if you die, please hurry up before this thing mutates out of control and it goes beyond the Delta variant and it becomes a totally different virus, and then the vaccine that we have is no longer affected for it, and we're not protected. That's what I hear some people say. They start panicking, thinking if 40% of this country won't get vaccinated, and the Delta variant mutates into a different monstrous version of itself that no longer applies to the vaccine that's in us right now, then we're not protected and we could very easily die. And so if the people are not going to take it, if they're going to die, please do it quickly so that we're going to be safe. Morality goes out the window when you're in danger and when you could die and it's things that you care about. And I totally understand that. I'm no different. You're no different. If it's between protecting us and the people in our orbit and the people who are doing the right thing and they've got the vaccine and they care about their lives or or a bunch of strangers who in our minds are doing something stupid. You can't save everybody. Even right now, school's starting back and some of the teachers are saying, my body, my choice, I don't want to get vaccinated. Legally, there's no way to force them to get vaccinated. But at the same time, do I want my son being taught by somebody that is stupid enough to not get vaccinated, has no interest in it, doesn't care that they're putting the lives of kids at risk? That's a big aspect of this. The people most at risk right now are kids. My son's too young to get vaccinated. My daughter's too young to get vaccinated. People under 12 can literally cannot get it. If they could, I probably would go ahead and do it tomorrow because it's that dangerous. But kids can't get vaccinated. And so to have adults be around them all day, teachers and school personnel and PE coaches and bus drivers and whatever that refuse to consider the lives of the kids that they're supposed to be taking care of and get vaccinated, I don't want him around them. Because in my mind, it's not just a matter of vaccines. It's like this person is selfish enough to put the life of children at risk. You don't hear people say that that much. You know, you say, oh, well, they're putting kids at risk. Fuck kids. People don't even seem to care about it. You say something like that, you don't even get a single like or retweet. And it's almost like, what about me? I care about myself. Fuck kids. It kind of comes back to everybody is selfless until they are asked to be 
selfless and need to be to save somebody's life. And then, well, you know, who knows? Who knows what people do? With American Healthcare, we can save a lot of people's lives every year with better health insurance and better coverage. And the same people that say no to everything say no, socialized medicine. I have an uncle who's very conservative and I heard him rant and rave about socialized medicine until one day he had a heart attack and didn't have health insurance. Now, don't you think that changed his perspective on that? But our healthcare system is, I won't bore you a lot with the minutia of it. And so when you talk about American healthcare, everybody has horror stories. I mean, everybody. It's so Byzantine and not meant for you to understand it. It's not really meant for you to understand it. Why don't people want the American healthcare system to change? In a lot of rural counties, that's the largest employer. One of the only employer with decent paying jobs. And so that's why some people don't want to go to a Medicare for all system. My brother, he's a doctor and he's still in school to become a doctor. It takes forever to be a doctor in the United States. It might take you 10 years, but by the time you do, you're going to be one of the best paid professionals in the world. We have one of the, the, the world's highest paid doctors. And so sometimes you'll hear people, especially like conservatives, be like, why are all these doctors foreign? Every time I go to the doctor's office, it's a Chinese doctor, an Indian doctor, whatever. Why is it all, all these people from other countries? But I think one of the reasons would be that because we pay better than anywhere else in the world. And so conservatives hear you say that, and they're like, exactly, that's why we got to keep the system the way it is because we're bringing in the best doctors from all over the world to work here. I don't know if they're the best. I think they're probably the greediest because you got to think if you're a top-notch doctor and you really truly care about helping people, you're going to stay in the slums of India the worst areas of Brazil or Africa, you're going to really apply your trade there. You're not going to want to come to the United States unless it's just a money thing. So, I mean, you might be attracting some of the doctors that want the most money from all over the world, and that's why you have so many. And so when people talk about changing the American healthcare system, kind of a hidden villain in that is the American Medical Association. People don't like to think about the doctors themselves. They like to think about the pharmaceutical companies and the health insurance companies, and those are very comfortable villains, and they're right out of central casting to be villains. They fit very clearly as villains, but doctors themselves, a lot of them don't want the system to, to change. Why would they? They make a shitload of money. And so a lot of times when you even hear people talk about the system changing, well, now this is a decision that should be between your doctor and you, not uh, health insurance companies or the government. And I'm like, first of all, who fucking picks their doctor? Whenever they say that, like, you should pick your doctor. And I'm like, I don't pick my doctor. Your health insurance company picks your doctor. A lot of companies won't take certain health insurance. I've never had this big of an attachment to an individual doctor. Most doctors, for me, they come in the room, they talk to me for 30 seconds, and they act like they can't wait to get out of there. I usually change them a lot. In the last four years, I've had three separate doctors because if they come in and they want to prescribe a whole bunch of medicines that I don't feel like I need to be on, then I'm going to get a new doctor. They come in and they're like, you're five pounds overweight. You need to be on this blood pressure medicine for the rest of your life or whatever. You don't know if that's what you need or if that's what a pharmaceutical company has said, hey, come in here and write a thousand of these prescriptions this month and you can go to a all-you-can-eat paid vacation in the Caribbean or something like that. I mean, who knows what you really need or what you don't need? And you can go to four different doctors and they'll tell you four separate things. So whenever people say, well, you got to trust your doctor, not really. I mean, it really truly depends. And I think that's why there's so much skepticism. The American healthcare profession, probably the vaccines in general, because they're so often wrong about stuff. I'll give you several examples. These are anecdotal, but everybody's got anecdotal examples like this. My wife went to a dermatologist in New York for pimples. At the time, it was a few pimples and one of them gone. He prescribed her a medicine that she took and her arm started breaking out. There was an entire rash on her body. And then she went and looked up the medicine. It had nothing to do with acne or pimples or whatever like that. It was something totally unrelated to that to treat a separate condition. And it was still in the experimental phase. So what this guy had done, I suppose he saw a black woman with a complicated name, probably in his mind. And he thought, okay, well, let's use her as a guinea pig and let's see what this medicine does. He was doing medical experiments on her with medicines that were still in the experimental stages and had nothing to do with what she was there to be treated for. And he just thought it was okay to do that and not tell her about it. Didn't tell her about it. Didn't say, I'll give you uh, th this amount of money to do. You know, medical testing, you're supposed to get paid. You're not supposed to pay them for a medicine that you don't need and then to pay the copay to come see him in the first place. But that was just something that he felt comfortable doing to, to experiment on somebody like that. When my son was born, in Minnesota, and my daughter was born in Los Angeles, they had the same procedures. Not complicated C-section births that took about the same amount of time, but we had different health insurances in different states. In Minnesota, when he was born, it was $10,000. When she was born in California under a different provider, it was $200. 
Now you think to yourself, how is that possible? She was born later. My wife was older at that time. That should have been the more complicated pregnancy. But that was substantially cheaper because of health insurance. So you go from $10,000 for one birth to $200 for the next birth just because your health insurance has changed. When she was born, we wanted to speak to a nurse. We never could see a nurse, but this woman kept coming in trying to sell us this complicated breastfeeding equipment. I mean, this British woman must have come in about four or five times. I finally told her to leave. But over the few days that we were there for C-sections, you spend two or three days in the hospital. She kept coming in and basically trying to upsell us on this very complicated breastfeeding equipment. And we said, well, we already have a breast pump. We've already got this kind of equipment. We don't need this. It's redundant. Kept giving us the hard sell. Now, can you imagine that? Like a woman has just had a baby, C-section birth, somewhat traumatic medical procedure. It's not an easy procedure. She's going to be recuperating. She's in the hospital. She's on painkillers. She's not totally concentrating. She wants to bond with the baby. And then have a woman come in and try to sell her something she doesn't need, doesn't want, the size of her refrigerator, has said many times, I do not want this, I do not need it, please leave me alone. Can a nurse come in here to monitor me and check my vitals and things like that that we've been asking for? Oh, yeah, yeah, a nurse will come in here. Right after I teach you about the, you know, I mean, can you just imagine trying to upsell somebody in such a vulnerable state like that? I mean, it's a little shameful. Other stories, Alabama now, a lot of the dentists are doing Botox. They've begun to upsell people on Botox. So they have this sign that say do dental work and Botox. I think because Botox is an injectable, you don't have to necessarily do a lot. I think it's a few weeks of classes and then you're certified to be able to give uh, Botox injections. I believe I saw that on Nip Tuck that because it was an injectable, it was an easier thing than a surgery or procedure. But imagine going into your dentist and being like, hey, how does that crown look, doc? It looks pretty good, but I can't say that about them fucking crow's feet under your eyes. Yeah, them things got to go. You know, I mean, they're trying to upsell you on Botox. This stuff is insane. Another example, my wife needed a brace for her leg, just a strap for like a sprain or something like that. And the doctor's office wanted to give her one for $300. She went on Amazon and found the exact same fucking strap, exact same model, exact same strap for 15 bucks. And she came back and said, why is it 15 bucks? And you're trying to charge me $300 for the exact same strap. Well, they couldn't really answer her. And so she gave them back their strap and bought the one for 15 bucks. But it's endless. This kind of thing is endless. There's no price caps on any of the prescription drugs, any of the medical supplies, doctor salaries, what they make, what they can charge, what they pass on to the consumer. And most people have had an experience where they've had to haggle over a bill. I used to go to an optometrist and every fucking bill I had to haggle him over. And I mean, you'd see, I'd be like, give me an itemized bill so I can see where you're coming up with this stuff. And I mean, it was insane. If he gave you a cup of water, he'd put the paper cup down as five bucks or something like that. Like, And I mean, it just went every test, everything he ran, even if you didn't need it. You go to the dentist, they run a bunch of x-rays. They don't need to do them. You just went to the dentist six months ago. They don't need to do x-rays. They do them again for a guy with no cavities and somebody who's never had braces, doesn't chew tobacco, never had throat cancer. They do the x-rays again. Why? So they can bill your insurance for them. And it's all about trying to get as much money as they can out of it. So where does this system come from that the United States is stuck with, this insurance system? Well, it really comes from World War II. That's why most of the countries have a different medical system than we do. Because back in World War II, all the, the rest of the industrialized world, they were leveled from World War II. So there was no money for health insurance or health care. So the government had to do it. They had to provide that. In the United States, wages went up because it was a buyer's market. You needed good people to do wages, but it got to be so inflated. I mean, you might pay a ditch digger $1,000 a day or something because that's how inflated the wages were getting. So companies were like, oh, let's do perks instead. We'll just do some perks. So we'll give somebody great medical insurance, and at that time, medical insurance just wasn't what we think of today. A lot of people didn't have health insurance. It goes back to Old Testament, New Testament government. If the Old Testament government's like, we don't need health insurance because uh, God provides. And if you die, well, that's God's will. So don't worry about it. Most people lived to be about 40 years old at that time period, right? So about the age of my cousin who just died from COVID, that would be considered a good long life back in those days. That's how health insurance gets started, is it becomes a perk for certain employers to woo in whoever they wanted to work there. And then our system has stuck that way and become more and more and more expensive, while other countries have saved trillions of dollars by having a somewhat nationalized healthcare system. And one of the big arguments against the public option, because I hear people say, well, why do Medicare for all when you can do the public option? Public option makes sense. Then it's a choice. I like that thinking as well. I don't think private insurance needs to be totally abolished like some people do. But the only problem I have with the public option is a lot of places won't take it. In Los Angeles, they have a form of healthcare. It's basically an HMO that is so cheap. It's a essentially a public option, and it's within the city of LA. Problem is, a lot of doctors won't take it. So you might have health insurance, 
But then finding a doctor who will take that and use that to even see you becomes quite a challenge. Public option would be better, but again, can you find doctors who will take it? Will they even let you in certain places or will it just be like, well, we have to find the lowest rung possible of able that are even willing to see us? Then you have the big pharmaceutical companies who have fought tooth and nail to any change to the healthcare system. And they said things like, we can't take a price cut because we need all this money for R&D. We know that's bullshit. You look at what their R&D costs are, it's not 10% of what they spend on commercials. Anybody who watches cable television knows they advertise a lot on commercials. If you don't just watch streamers, like if you watch just regular TV or any cable channel, you'd think America was the biggest bunch of losers that's ever been. I mean, you can't get through a commercial break without either food or drugs, food or drugs. That's all the commercials are. It's 15 food commercials, Chick-fil-A, Papa John's, Reese's Cups, M&M's, Coca-Cola, and then usually two medical commercials. And the medical commercial, do you have anxiety? Are you depressed? Do you have a hard time getting through the day? Did somebody honk at you in a traffic jam and now you're ready to just freak out and go into a shell, take this medicine. So there's anxiety drugs, depression drugs, all these drugs for mental health, physical conditions. You would not think Americans would be able to get through a day without popping a pill if all you did was watch American television and just see the commercials there. And so obviously these pharmaceutical companies that make a shitload of money, Pfizer made $15 billion off the COVID vaccine. Now, Jonas Salk released the polio vaccine for free. He didn't want to make a dime off of it. Jonas Salk is a hero. Pfizer might be sitting there thinking like, oh, Delta variant's good for us because then we can come up with an updated vaccination and then people will have to get that. And then if it mutates into a different disease, well, then we'll have to cure that as well. But we won't really cure it. We'll keep it going. You see now pharmaceutical companies, they're not even trying to cure diseases. They just want to keep them going forever. They just want to be able to treat them. HIV is not cured, but there's medicines you can take to where you can live forever. It's not about curing disease. It's about keeping you alive forever and draining you slow, <laughs> which is why I'm a little skeptical of any doctor that recommends any medicine, especially if it's something that seems completely unnecessary, but there's no real regulations against over-prescribing medicines or anything about that doctors shouldn't take money from pharmaceutical companies or not necessarily money, but trips or perks or having the hottest woman you've ever seen come in as a pharmaceutical sales rep and flirt with them a few days a week and be like, sure, I'll write 10,000 opioid prescriptions in the next six months. That sounds reasonable to me. There's no real laws against doing any of that stuff, but people don't like to think of doctors as being the bad guys. They like to kind of avoid them whenever they talk about this stuff and say, well, it's the big pharma we got to crack down on and it's the health insurance we got to crack down on. And I'm like, yeah, but what about the hospitals themselves and the doctors themselves? Are you going to put price caps on their salaries? Because to do Medicare for all, I don't see how you could avoid it, but it seems like they would fight that tooth and nail. And so it seems like the American Medical Association, they don't want to be out front being the villains, but they're happy to let health insurance companies and big pharma kind of take the brunt of the public's anger. Well, they don't want the system to change either. Nobody in healthcare really wants the system to change that much because like even at a hospital, there's a board of directors that makes a fortune. There's a lot of hospital admin jobs that make a fortune. There's a lot of people that make a lot of money off our healthcare system. And so for everybody that you think, well, they're poor and they have bad healthcare, you know, for every 10 of those people, there may be somebody who's gotten completely rich off of selling medical devices or being in the hospital admin or being a contractor for services or producing some of the drugs that they might overprescribe. And so there's a whole big system and industry around that. Old Testament government says we got to leave that alone. If that's the way that it is, that's the way that it is. If some people die, then they die. New Testament government says, but that's a terrible attitude to take. People are dying. Why can't we save every last one of these people, especially when we can now cure some of these diseases, but we just don't want to. Donald Trump, when he got coronavirus, he was deathly sick, but they threw everything they had at it and they cured him. They saved his life. They could probably cure my cousin's life, but they don't want to spend the resources to save somebody like that. They don't want to save a white working class person in rural Alabama. Does his life matter as much to these people as the president of the United States at that time? Of course not. They don't view that it does. To me, my cousin's life means more to me than somebody like Donald Trump, whose life I wouldn't give two nickels for. But that's not how they view it. They say, well, God picks winners and losers. People that are very successful, God has chosen them to be successful. Who are we to question his way? And New Testament people say, but anybody can be successful. Anybody under this government matters just as much as the next person because that's what Jesus Christ would have believed. The rich man and the poor man, they're equal. People who save the environment are more important than people who tear it down. Old Testament government says, ah, but that's not true. And so you have that conflict and you can see that spread out all over everything now. Okay, people, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for episode 89 and I hope you had a great summer and I look forward to seeing you soon.